Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to be with you today. You might remember that we did a story on Elliot Ness and his band of untouchables who waged war against Al Capone's crime syndicate in Chicago during Prohibition. Elliot Ness became a national hero and a legend, his exploits inspiring a great film called The Untouchables, as well as a TV series. Elliot Ness was in his early 20s when he became a Treasury-slash-Prohibition agent in Chicago, and that's where he began his rise to national fame. And yes, he was a self-promoter and had an excellent grasp of how best to use public relations. But his exploits, especially in busting up illegal gin joints and going after Scarface Al Capone's business with battering rams, were legendary and required courage, leadership, and innovation. What many people don't know is what happened to Ness after Chicago. When he was invited to a crime-infested Cleveland, Ohio, to become the director of public safety, and given more power to enforce than any man in that city. If Chicago was Elliot Ness's pinnacle of success, Cleveland was his punch in the teeth. He was to survive Cleveland and bring about many positive changes to that beleaguered city, but both he and the citizenry of Cleveland would remain haunted for a lifetime by one psychotic and violent serial killer who terrorized the populace, dominated the newspapers, scattered body parts throughout the city for years, and turned Ness's hunt for him into a personal vendetta. Our story today is called Elliot Ness and the Butcher of Kingsbury Run. It's a little-known story about one of America's great crime fighters, Elliot Ness, and his efforts to take down a serial killer in Cleveland, Ohio in the mid-1930s, a killer who was never brought to trial, a brutal madman who between 1935 and 1938 roamed the flats of Cleveland, murdering a known 12 men and women, and another possible 20 victims, not only in Cleveland but in surrounding states, and leaving their headless torsos, often dismembered, or just their heads, for terrified citizens to find mostly in the area of Cleveland called the Cleveland Flats, which was a tangle of shipyards and industrial buildings spread along the banks of the notoriously twisty Cuyahoga, or Crooked River, that divided the city into its eastern and western halves. Within that area, Kingsbury Run was a dismal collection of shanties, from and around which many of what came to be called the Torso Murder Victims were discovered. Many of these victims came from an area east of Kingsbury Run, called the Roaring Third, or Hobo Jungle, known for its bars, gambling dens, brothels, and vagrants. This series of gruesome crimes, called the Cleveland Torso Murders, was to become Ohio's most brutal, unsolved crime spree. Elliot Ness, who had risen to fame during the Prohibition era, and was known far and wide as the federal treasury agent who brought down Chicago's top gangster, Al Capone, and waged a war between his band of untouchables, who were lawmen who couldn't be bought out or corrupted, and crime and corruption in Chicago, found himself in a tough place after Capone was sent off to prison for tax evasion. There was a sense that with the new administration coming to Washington, that prohibition wouldn't last long, and Ness's department was shrinking. He wasn't able to incorporate his new ideas of scientific policing to Chicago's law enforcement sector, because officially he was a federal agent, not a Chicago top cop. He made some political moves while trying to move into the early FBI, of which his older brother was a part, but made some enemies in the process and ended up getting transferred to Cincinnati, 
where his prime responsibility became the breaking up of bootleggers in the Appalachian Mountain area outside of that city. Ness would later say, These mountain men and their squirrel rifles gave me almost as many chills as the Capone mob. In 1934, Ness was offered a job as the director of public safety for Cleveland and saw the offer as an opportunity to continue his crime-fighting career in a city that truly needed his expertise. He jumped on it. It was a position that placed him in charge of the police, fire, and building departments of America's seventh-largest city at that time. Most of the veteran policemen were cynical and didn't believe Ness was for real, one local reporter would recall. The politicians of both parties were sure he was an over-publicized tyro, a Boy Scout built up by the newspapers who would soon fall flat on his face. There was a reason to think so. At age 28, Ness was the youngest safety director in the history of any large city, and he arrived in Cleveland at a particularly turbulent moment. The city had been an industrial powerhouse in the 1920s, but all progress halted as the effects of the Great Depression took hold. Cleveland coasted downhill at dizzying speed, one city historian would later note. Worse yet, the Depression created a vacuum in which the underworld thrived. During the Prohibition years, Cleveland became a major hub of bootleg liquor and its sinister offshoots, including high-stakes gambling, prostitution, and racketeering. This, in turn, gave rise to a web of graft that ran through every level of the city's government and police force. Things got so bad, according to Clayton Fritchie of the Cleveland Press, that policemen were expected to tip their hats when they passed a gangster on the streets. Ness, who rose to crime-fighting fame in Chicago for creating his band of untouchables, meaning loyal police underlings who couldn't be threatened or bribed, would surround himself with the same type of men in Cleveland. He was the kind of leader who inspired loyalty. From his first day on the job, Cleveland's new top cop chipped away at an entrenched system of bribes and payoffs. Ness took an aggressive, hands-on approach insisting that he would not be a remote director chained to a desk at City Hall. I'm going to be out, he said, and I'll cover this town pretty well. Not only that, he promised, I will do undercover work to obtain my own evidence and acquaint myself personally with conditions. In truth, the odds of Ness going undercover were slim. His face appeared on the front pages of the city's newspapers almost daily, making him easily one of the most recognizable figures in town. In case anyone missed the photos, reporters were quick to embellish, often dwelling on his boyish good looks. He is about 5 feet 11 and a half inches tall, weighs 172 pounds, has a mop of unruly brown hair which he futilely attempts to keep parted, the press observed. His eyes are blue and keen, and his complexion ruddy. He is trim and athletic. He looks more like a collegian than an expert criminologist. But he would soon earn respect. His looks were deceiving. Day after day, for months at a time, Clevelanders awoke to read of some fresh feat of crime-busting from their young safety director. Ness had kicked open the doors of an after-hours gambling parlor while the city slept, or cracked down on an extortion racket, or rousted a crooked precinct captain. There was never anybody like him, said one admirer. He really captured the imagination of the public in his early years, and he was given a hero's worship. But there was one stubborn blot on his otherwise flawless record. Beginning in 1934 and continuing on Ness's watch, a string of brutal murders staggered the city. 
the killings were utterly without precedent, so grisly and shocking that they came to be called a real-life murders in the Rue Morgue. Though Cleveland had seen more than its share of violent crime, being nearly as mobbed up as Chicago and New York, these murders were chillingly exceptional. Each of the victims had been beheaded, some it appeared, while still alive. Body parts were mutilated, and limbs were often missing. The remains, in most cases, were painstakingly dismembered and scattered across the city. On the east side of the city, shanty towns had sprung up in an area called Kingsbury Run, a popular place for transients, near the Erie and Nickel Plate Railroads. Industry had recently risen, and then fallen, hard, along with the Depression. There was a crude oil refinery which belonged to John D. Rockefeller, along with the oil and naphtha works, and when both started to fail, the workers suffered as well. Sections of the shanty-covered land included African Americans, Hungarians, Czechs, and Slovaks, plus hobo towns, and one of those sections was called Kingsbury Run, which bordered along the Cuyahoga River. On September 5, 1934, a young man found the remains of a woman in her mid-thirties. The torso, with thighs still attached, but amputated at the knees, had washed up on the shores of Lake Erie, just east of Brattonall. Cuyahoga County Coroner A.J. Pierce noted, a chemical preservative on the skin which had turned it red, tough, and leathery. The subsequent search yielded just a few other body parts, but her head was never found. The woman was never identified, but was soon referred to by the newspapers as the Lady of the Lake. It wasn't until two years later that this find was included in the official killing total, and thus became known as victim number zero. It would still be another year before the case began officially, and then it would be in another part of the city, the now infamous Kingsbury Run. One year later, on December 23, 1935, two teenage boys discovered the decapitated, emasculated corpse of a white male at the base of Jackass Hill, where East 49th Street dead ends into Kingsbury Run. The body, naked save for a pair of socks, was clean and drained of blood, with rope burns around both wrists. Coroner Pierce determined the cause of death had been decapitation, meaning the victim had been beheaded alive. Fingerprints identified this victim as Edward Andresy, a 28-year-old white male who frequented the above-mentioned Roaring Third. While searching the crime scene, police discovered a second body nearby, also decapitated and emasculated. It appeared to be covered with the same chemical preservative as the Lady of the Lake. This body apparently had been dead for at least a couple of weeks. The 40-year-old white male was never identified and became another John Doe. In January 1936, a woman discovered parts of a woman's body neatly wrapped in newspaper and packed in two half-bushel baskets. The baskets were left alongside the Hart Manufacturing Building on Central Avenue near East 20th Street for the first unlucky passerby to find. The rest of the remains, except the head, were recovered about ten days later in a nearby vacant lot on Orange Avenue. As with victims one and two, the cause of death had been decapitation. In this case, however, the killer waited for rigor mortis to set in before disarticulating the rest of the body. Cleveland police used fingerprints to identify victim number three as Florence Polillo, a waitress and barmaid who at the time of her death resided at East 32nd Street in Carnegie, 
right on the edge of the Roaring Third. In June 1936, early one morning in Kingsbury Run, two young boys discovered the head of a white male wrapped in a pair of trousers close to the East 55th Street Bridge. The next day, Cleveland police found the body of the 20-some-year-old man the next day dumped in front of the Nickel Plate Railroad Police Building. Clean and drained of blood, the corpse was intact except for the severed head. Pierce again determined that death had been caused by decapitation. In spite of a fresh set of fingerprints and the presence of six distinctive tattoos on various parts of the body, police were never able to identify the victim, who became known as Tattoo Man. A plaster reproduction of the man's head, along with a diagram of the kind and location of the tattoos, were displayed at the Great Lakes Exposition of 1936. That must have been a gruesome display. More than 100,000 people saw the death mask and tattoo chart, but the tattooed man was never identified. The original death mask, along with three others from the case, are on display at the Cleveland Police Museum. By the time Elliot Ness took office, the mad butcher had already claimed four victims. The first two were found in September of 1935, as mentioned, and the Lady of the Lake was later determined to be the mad butcher's first victim. In 1936, body parts continued to pile up. In July of that year, a teenage girl came across the decapitated remains of a 40-year-old white male while walking through the woods near Clinton Road in Big Creek on the near west side of Cleveland. The victim had been dead about two months, and his head, as well as a pile of bloody clothing, was found nearby. Judging by the enormous quantity of blood that had seeped into the ground, this man had apparently been killed where his body was found. This was victim number five, and he was never identified. In September of that year, 1936, a man tripped over the upper half of a man's torso while trying to hop a train at East 37th Street in Kingsbury Run. Cleveland police searched a nearby pool, which was nothing more than a big open sewer, and found the lower half of the torso and parts of both legs. Police sent a diver in to make the recovery. The number of onlookers that turned out to watch the grim spectacle was estimated at over 600, and the killer may well have been among them. Victim number six was in his late 20s, and the cause of death, yet again, was decapitation. Coroner Pierce noted that the lack of hesitation marks in the disarticulation of the body indicated a strong, confident killer, very familiar with human anatomy. The victim died instantly when the head was cut off in one bold, clean stroke. Victim number six was never identified. In the fall of that year, a media frenzy literally took place. The fall of that year marked six brutal killings in one year, and the police had neither clues nor suspects. The Cleveland Press, the Cleveland News, and the Cleveland Plain Dealer all reported almost daily on the killings and the lack of a suspect. Tension was high. Who was the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run? Giving in to mounting pressure from Mayor Harold Burton, recently appointed safety director Elliot Ness, who had his hands full trying to clean up the city, crime-wise, corruption-wise, and in every other way, got more involved in the case. Coroner Pierce called for what the newspapers dubbed a torso clinic, a meeting of police, the coroner, and other experts to discuss information and to profile someone who could be responsible for these gruesome killings. We'll return with Elliot Ness and the Butcher of Kingsbury Run right after these sponsor messages.
And now, back to our story. The following is an excerpt from a series of articles titled The Kingsbury Run Murders, written by Marilyn Bardsley for CrimeLibrary.org, which is an excellent source on this matter as well as others. The following morning, an irritable Elliot Ness pulled himself away from his research into police corruption and got personally involved in the Kingsbury Run case. The timing of this latest murder was horrible. Ness had been rushing to put the finishing touches on his evidence for Frank Culleton to affect the largest graft prosecution in the city's history. He wasn't pleased to have to interrupt this crucial work because of some crazy butcher. Unfortunately, he could not ignore the case any longer. Once again, Ness went over every detail of the case, personally interviewing several of the detectives who'd been working on it. Then he ordered a cleanup of the section in Kingsbury Run where the bodies had been found. Every hobo in that area was brought in and questioned, warned about the killer, and urged to find somewhere else to live. Twenty detectives were permanently assigned to the case until it was solved, although with the meager clues. It wasn't at all clear what twenty full-time detectives were going to do after they interviewed all the bums in the area. But in no time, the twenty detectives had plenty to do, simply because everybody in the city seemed to have his own idea of who the killer was. Detectives were inundated with calls about the strange behavior of neighbors, relatives, and co-workers. Anybody who kept unusual hours, carried large packages out of his house, or kept a knife in his pocket, was fair game, not to mention every butcher, physician, male nurse, mortician, and hunter. The worst of it all was that Elliot Ness said every tip, no matter how trivial it sounded, must be followed up. The detectives estimated it would take months maybe years, to finish. And they were right, and it never was finished. Following up tips was not the only thing the detectives did. They repeatedly scoured the records of the state hospital for the insane, as well as followed and watched recently discharged patients. The police department put detectives Peter Marillo and Martin Zalewski on the case full-time. They moved deftly through the seedy underworld that constituted the Run and the Roaring Third, often dressing the part while off-duty. By the time the case had run its course, the two had interviewed more than 1,500 people. The department as a whole, more than 5,000 people. This would be the biggest police investigation in Cleveland history. The November elections returned Harold Burton as mayor. He was the man who hired Elliot Ness. But Coroner Pierce was replaced by the young Democrat and now legendary Samuel Gerber. Gerber's fierce dedication to medicine, coupled with his law degree, put him at the forefront of the investigation. Lead police investigator Peter Marillow noted similarities between the Torso murders and other dismemberment killings which had taken place in western Pennsylvania, theorizing that the killer might be hopping trains and hiding bodies in boxcars. Kingsbury Run and the city of Cleveland had plenty of railroad tracks. Cuyahoga County Coroner Dr. Samuel Gerber said the precision with which the bodies had been dismembered led him to believe the killer could have had some medical training. Marillo was a determined detective. He posed as a hobo trying to draw out the killer, but had no success. He hung around the camps and the shanties and asked questions. He collected all the known witness and forensic evidence that there was to be had, and with his team investigated around the clock. One torso he followed up on had been found in a swampy area in Pennsylvania, and parts of it had been wrapped in a Cleveland newspaper. Meanwhile, the killings went on. 
in February of 1937, a man found the upper half of a woman's torso washed up on the shore east of Breton Hall. Unlike the previous victims, the cause of death had not been decapitation. This had happened after she was already dead. The lower half of the torso washed ashore three months later at about East 30th Street. The woman was in her mid-twenties. She was never identified. In June of 1937, a teenage boy discovered a human skull under the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge. Next to it was a burlap bag containing the skeletal remains of what turned out to be a petite black woman, about 40 years old. Dental work allowed for the unofficial identification as Rose Wallace of Scoville Avenue. Police followed every lead they had on her, but they led nowhere. One month later, in July of 1937, there were labor problems at the flats in the summer of 1937, and the National Guard had been called in to maintain order. A young guardsman standing watch by the West 3rd Street Bridge saw the first piece of victim number 9 bobbied in the Cuyahoga River in the wake of a passing tugboat. Over the next few days, police recovered the entire body, except for the head, from the waters of the Cuyahoga River. The abdomen had been gutted and the heart ripped out, clearly indicating a new element of viciousness in the killer's approach. The victim was in his mid to late thirties. He was never identified. While Ness was riding high on the coattails of his victory against the labor racketeers, detectives Peter Marillo and Martin Zalewski, Orly May, and Ernel Musel, and many others, continued their tireless and frustrating search for the mad butcher. Many months had passed since the body of the ninth victim had been found, and the trail was clearly cold. Nonetheless, the men continued to interrogate hundreds of suspects. Once they exhausted the leads generated by the ninth victim, the detectives decided to concentrate more closely on the only two victims who had been identified, Edward Andersey and Florence Polillo. Perhaps, they thought, both of these homicides had not been investigated as thoroughly as they should have been. But back in 1935 and early 1936, nobody had understood that there was a serial killer at work. The detectives retraced all of the leads and suspects from the earlier murders, but ended up with nothing but a few photos of Edward Andersey and an ocean of sordid stories about the lives of Andresi and Polillo. In mid-March of 1938, something happened that would have a quiet but lasting impact on the case. In Sandusky, a couple hours' drive west of Cleveland, a dog found the severed leg of a man. Police began an immediate search of the swampy area where the leg was found. Lieutenant David Cowles of the Cleveland Police Department went personally to Sandusky to see if there was any connection between this leg and the mad butcher. Cowles, the brilliant self-educated forensic expert, remembered that one of the Cleveland surgeons who closely fit the profile of the mad butcher was eliminated as a suspect because he was always at a veterans hospital in Sandusky when the Cleveland murders occurred. On a hunch, Cowles visited the Sandusky soldiers and sailors' home and started talking to people there. Cowles ascertained that Dr. Frank Sweeney had voluntarily admitted himself several times to the Veterans Hospital to treat his alcoholism. Some of these visits overlapped the times when the mad butcher was at work in Cleveland. At first sight, it seemed as though his hospitalizations provided a perfect alibi for Dr. Sweeney. But Cowles was a persistent man. He wanted to know how closely patients were watched. The answer was that a surgeon who voluntarily sought help for his drinking problem was not really watched at all. It was, after all, a hospital, not a prison, 
and security was almost non-existent for patients. Also at various times, particularly holidays and weekends, the hospital was crowded with visitors. Ambulatory patients like Dr. Sweeney could pretty well come and go as they pleased. It was not unusual for an individual suffering from alcoholism to succumb to his needs, get his hands on some liquor, and disappear for a day or two on a binge. So, Cowles concluded, it was very possible for Dr. Sweeney to leave the Veterans Hospital and travel by car or train into Cleveland, commit the murders, and return to the hospital without his short absence being noticed. By now it was April of 1938, and a young laborer on his way to work in the flats saw what he first thought was a dead fish along the banks of the Cuyahoga River. Closer inspection revealed it to be the lower half of a woman's leg, the first piece of victim number 10 to be recovered. A month later, police pulled two burlap bags out of the river containing both parts of the torso and most of the rest of both legs. For the first time, Coroner Gerber detected drugs in the system. Were the drugs used to immobilize the victim, or was she an addict? The answer might have come if they had found the arms, but they never did. She was never identified. August 16, 1938. Three scrap collectors foraging in a dump site at East 9th Street and Lakeside found the torso of a woman wrapped in a man's double-breasted blue blazer and then wrapped again in an old quilt. The legs and arms were discovered in a recently constructed makeshift box wrapped in brown butcher paper and held together with rubber bands. The head had been similarly wrapped. Gerber noted that some of the parts looked as if they'd been refrigerated. While searching for more pieces, the police discovered the remains of a second body only yards away. These two bodies had been placed in a location that was in plain view from Elliot Ness's office window, almost as if taunting him. That proved too much for Elliot Ness. Two days later, August 18, 1938, at 12.40 a.m. in the morning, Elliot Ness and a group of 35 police officers and detectives raided the homeless encampments in Kingsbury Run. Eleven squad cars, two police vans, and three fire trucks descended on the largest cluster of makeshift shacks where the Cuyahoga River twists behind Public Square. Ness's raiders worked their way south to the run, eventually gathering up 63 men. At dawn, police and firemen searched the deserted shanties for clues. Then, on orders from safety director Ness, the shacks were set on fire and burned to the ground. The press severely criticized Ness for his actions. The public remained afraid and frustrated. Critics said the raid would do nothing to solve the murder. However, the raid did solve a number of crimes. July 1939. County Sheriff Martin O'Donnell arrested 52-year-old Bohemian bricklayer Frank Dolezal for the murder of Flo Palillo. Dolezal had lived with her for a while, and subsequent investigation revealed he'd been acquainted with victims Edward Andersey and Rose Wallace. His confession turned out to be a bewildering blend of incoherent ramblings and neat, precise details, almost as if he'd been coached. Before he could go to trial, Dolezal was found dead in his cell. The five-foot-eight Dolezal had apparently hanged himself from a hook only five feet seven inches off the floor. Gerber's autopsy revealed six broken ribs, all of which had been obtained while in the sheriff's custody. To this day, few believe Frank Dolezal was the torso killer. His confession, which was most likely forced, made no sense. He was an unemployed bricklayer, 
and knew nothing of surgical skills needed to dismember bodies. It is believed that Donazal was killed while in jail. The final suspect, whom researchers believe is the actual killer, is Dr. Francis E. Sweeney. This article by Marilyn Bargely reads, Dr. Francis Edward Sweeney was born in 1894 into an impoverished Irish family who lived on the east side of Cleveland at the edge of Kingsbury Run. Tragedy marked Frank's early life. His father had been badly injured in an accident, and his mother had died of a stroke when he was nine, leaving him and his several siblings to eke out a most frugal existence. Despite the family's poverty, Frank was determined to make a success of himself. His very high intelligence and strong work ethic allowed Frank to work his way through undergraduate work, pharmacy school, and medical school, all the while holding down full-time jobs. His classmates in medical school elected him vice president of his sophomore class, and his professors recommended him without reservation. After decades of exhausting effort, he graduated from medical school in St. Louis in 1928 and became a surgical resident at St. Alexis Hospital in the Kingsbury Run area. His siblings remembered him as a man who was almost completely absorbed in science and medicine. Even so, he would stop what he was doing and immediately attend to a family member who was injured or sick. His concern for the health of his siblings and their children endeared him to them. They all respected his intelligence and his medical expertise. Sweeney's expertise as a surgical resident allowed him to become a protege of the highly respected teaching physician, Dr. Carl Heyman. Sweeney seemed to have a very promising career ahead of him. He had a dark-haired Slavic beauty for a wife and two young sons. The many years of hardship and deprivation were becoming distant memories for him and his young family. Unfortunately for Frank Sweeney, just at the eve of his hard-earned achievement, destructive pressures were building inside of him. Overwork and a hereditary tendency towards alcoholism and psychosis began taking an obvious toll on his health. He was admitted to City Hospital for alcoholism, but the treatment was unsuccessful. The drinking worsened, and his marriage and career began to disintegrate. He became violent and abusive at home, and the hospital severed its relationship with him. Eventually, his wife filed for divorce in 1936, seeking custody of the children and an order which would restrain him from visiting, interfering, or molesting her. According to his wife, Dr. Sweeney had begun to drink continuously two years after their marriage in July of 1927 and remained in a state of habitual drunkenness until their separation in September of 1934. Investigator Cowles took particular note of the timing of Sweeney's deterioration, which seemed to reach a climax just about the time that the Lady of the Lake, the probable first victim in the murder series, washed upon the shores of Lake Erie in September of 1934. Some of Sweeney's problems may have been genetic, others caused by an injury during World War I, and some by overwork. Alcoholism ran in Frank's family and had gripped both Frank and his father. Mental illness was also a factor. His father spent the last years of his life in an asylum, suffering from what was loosely termed psychosis. He received a severe head injury in France during World War I and was subsequently awarded a partial disability pension. Other facts made Sweeney a compelling suspect as far as Investigator Cowles was concerned. Dr. Sweeney was born, raised, and spent most of his time in the Kingsbury Run area. He knew that savage ravine intimately from his boyhood explorations. 
Dr. Sweeney was a large and strong man, certainly powerful enough to carry Edward Andersey and his unidentified companion down the steep, rugged embankment of Jackass Hill and Kingsbury Run. Clearly, Dr. Sweeney had the medical knowledge to perform so many expert decapitations and dismemberments. Finally, Dr. Sweeney's alleged bisexuality could possibly explain why the mad butcher chose men and women victims, whereas most sex crimes were directed at one sex or the other. And there were features of the killings that indicated that. They have not been mentioned here. Elliot Ness led a secret investigation into Sweeney in 1938. Sweeney fit the profile of a medical professional with a deep understanding of the human anatomy. And I can't help but tell you how closely Dr. Francis Sweeney fits the profile of Dr. Francis Tumblety, the number one suspect of the Jack the Ripper murders, which occurred nearly 60 years before. Apparently, Ness took Sweeney to the old Cleveland Hotel and held him there for about two weeks. During that time, with the help of Leonard Keeler, Ness conducted a lie detector test on Sweeney, which he failed twice. Keeler, the inventor of the lie detector test, was present with Ness and Sweeney. According to Cleveland Magazine, he said, That's your man. I might as well throw my machine out the window if I say anything different. Ness had difficulty reconciling the smooth-talking, highly intelligent surgeon with the homicidal maniac that he had come to know as the Mad Butcher. It seems incredible to me that someone with his brains and education could be the monster we're looking for. Let me go in and talk to him for a half hour or so. Afterwards, I'd like Leonard to retest him, just to make sure. Ness went into the bedroom, closed the door, and sat on the bed opposite the doctor. Well? Sweeney asked. Are you satisfied now? A huge grin spread across his face. He stood up and looked out of the window. Yes, Ness said thoughtfully. I think you're the killer. Sitting on the bed, Ness became even more aware of the man's hulking size. Sweeney's bulk covered most of the window. He whirled around toward Ness and sneered. You think? He advanced towards Ness, who steeled himself for an attack. He leaned down and put his face a few inches from Ness's. Then prove it, he hissed. Shaken, Ness got up from the bed and opened the door. Cows, he called, but no one answered. Grossman, he called louder. Still no one answered. His words seemed to echo in the empty parlor. He was alone with this madman. Sweeney smiled knowingly. Looks like they all went to lunch. Ness went to the phone quickly, tracked down his colleagues in the coffee shop, and suggested that Cowles get back to the suite immediately. Years later, Ness would confess to his wife that never in all of his dangerous career had he ever felt as threatened as he did when he was alone with Dr. Sweeney. That afternoon, Dr. Keeler retested Sweeney several times, always with the same result. The men were left with the conclusion that Sweeney was the killer, but all they had was circumstantial evidence. Ness was certain that he could never get a conviction with what they had on Sweeney, especially with his high-profile cousin involved. We haven't mentioned that high-profile cousin up to this point, but it, but it bears mentioning. Francis E. Sweeney was the first cousin of Congressman Martin L. Sweeney, who was a political nemesis of Elliot Ness. So Ness had to tread very, very carefully with that one, if he was going to keep his job. 
and not be accused of going after Congressman Sweeney through his cousin. Ness realized that he could always choose to have the doctor followed constantly, but the physician had already shown that he could evade the surveillance. What exactly happened next is shrouded in mystery to this day. The only thing that is clear is that Dr. Sweeney admitted himself to the Sandusky Veterans Hospital two days after the interrogation. From August 25, 1938, until his death in 1965, Sweeney went from one hospital to another, both state mental hospitals and veterans hospitals in various parts of the country. He was not a prisoner, and he could leave the hospital voluntarily for days and even months at a time. However, at least in the Sandusky Hospital, there was a note attached to his records insisting that if the doctor ever left the hospital grounds, that the hospital was to immediately notify the police in Sandusky and Cleveland. In October of 1955, Dr. Sweeney was committed to the Dayton Veterans Hospital for the remaining decade of his life. Still, he was free to wander around the neighborhood, writing prescriptions for himself and his friends, until the hospital campaigned with the local pharmacists to cut off his drug supply. What is unknown is why Dr. Sweeney admitted himself to the hospital, and why he voluntarily stayed institutionalized for most of the rest of his life. Did Congressman Martin L. Sweeney get involved and work out some kind of deal with Ness? Did Sweeney's sisters urge him to get help and spare him and them all the humiliation of an eventual arrest and trial? Did Sweeney feel that the police were too close and put an end to his killing spree? Or did staying in those hospitals give him the kind of cover he needed to go out and commit murders of a different stamp? Or was this man, who Elliot Ness firmly believed to be the mad butcher, really an innocent nut who got his kicks from playing with the police? As Frank Sweeney's alcoholism worsened, his sense of humor became more bizarre. When he was at the Veterans Hospital in Dayton, Ohio, he sent a series of strange and incomprehensible, jeering postcards to Elliot Ness. Despite Frank's bizarre postcards, his siblings never believed that Frank was capable of violence. They saw him as a tragic figure who had everything within his grasp and then lost it all. A brilliant man destroyed by alcoholism and his own demons. The Torso serial killings officially stopped in 1938, the same year and time that Sweeney institutionalized himself. The last victim, the so-called Victim 10, was killed in April of 1938, even though remains of so-called Victims 11 and 12 were found in mid-August of that year. Elliot Ness felt Sweeney was the murderer, but could never bring it to trial. For years afterward, those taunting postcards from Sweeney really got to Ness. If you think that was enough to drive a man to drink, it no doubt was. In 1947, the same year Ness unsuccessfully ran for mayor of Cleveland, a woman, later identified as Elizabeth Short, was found murdered in Limert Park in Los Angeles. She had been cut in half, her intestines had been removed, and she was drained of her blood, all similar hallmarks to the torso murders. She became known as the Black Dahlia, and her murder has one more thing in common with the torso murders. It remains unsolved. One thing I can't find anywhere in my research, maybe you can find in yours, is what facility was Francis Sweeney in, in 1947? And was he in a veterans facility in or near Los Angeles? Might be worth checking out. The Kingsbury Run murders remain one of the most perplexing cases in our nation's criminal history. Rumors abound as to who may have been the killer. One thing is very clear. 
Elliot Ness had a suspect who he believed was undoubtedly the killer, and that was Dr. Francis Sweeney. And now the rest of the story for Elliot Ness. Beginning in Cleveland, outside of his involvement with the torso murderer in Cleveland. On December 11, 1935, Mayor Burton of Cleveland hired Ness as the city's safety director, as you know, which put him in charge of both the police and fire departments. Ness soon began a groundbreaking reform program that focused on professionalizing and modernizing the police, stopping juvenile delinquency, and improving traffic safety. He declared war on the mob, and his primary targets included Big Angelo Leonardo, Little Angelo Sirica, Mo Dalitz, John and George Angersola, and Charles Polizzi. Ness's most spectacular moment came on January 10, 1937, when he closed down the Harvard Club, a notorious gambling house located in Newburgh Heights. The Harvard Club, which existed there in Cleveland for 11 years, 1930 through 1941, was one of the largest gambling operations between New York and Chicago during the 1930s. The movable gambling casino, located at various addresses on Harvard Avenue in Newburgh Heights, accommodated 500 to 1,000 gamblers a night from all over the country who came to shoot craps and to play the slot machines, roulette, and all-night poker. It had been originally operated by William Fergus and later by Frank Joyner, but had been taken over in 1933 by James Shimmy Patton, Arthur Hebebran, and Daniel T. Gallagher. A celebrated raid led by safety director Elliot Ness closed the Harvard Club January 10, 1936, but it only closed it for 30 days. It reopened at 4209 Harvard Avenue the next month with expanded gambling facilities and a fleet of limousines for free customer pickup from downtown Cleveland. The club continued operation in spite of scandals, police raids, grand jury investigations, and ownership changes until 1941, when Judge Frank J. Lausch ordered it closed. During that time, Elliot and his wife Edna settled into a little cottage on the lake in Bay Village. Elliot was dedicated to his job and would rarely come home before 10 or 11 p.m. This didn't help their relationship. Elliot and Edna were divorced in January of 1939, and Edna returned to Chicago. She never remarried. Her greatest wish was not to be known. She lived the rest of her life incognito. After being single for only 10 months, Ness was ready to marry again. He married Eveline McAndrews in October of 1939. A well-liked and trendy socialite around Cleveland, Evelyn had a successful career as a fashion artist. After their marriage, they moved into a boathouse in the Clifton Lagoons in Lakewood. The third floor had windows on all sides and afforded Evelyn a comfortable place to work on her sketches for Cleveland's major department stores. She eventually began illustrating and authoring children's books. Because she had her own career, her husband's long work hours didn't bother her. She was proud that Ness was devoted to his job as safety director for the city of Cleveland. Elliot and Evelyn enjoyed dining and dancing at the popular hotel ballrooms of Cleveland. It was there that he met many of the artistic personalities of Cleveland. Invariably, Elliot would receive a phone call pulling him away and back to the line of duty as safety director. In 1940, Ness lost an important ally when Mayor Burton was elected to the U.S. Senate. Although Ness remained Cleveland's safety director, with the initiation of a peacetime draft in 1940 and large-scale military mobilization, the government sought a high-profile spokesperson to warn recruits about the dangers of venereal disease. 
Ness agreed to accept a part-time position as a consultant to the Federal Social Protection Program. He traveled to government offices in New York and Washington, as well as military bases around the country, preaching abstinence and safe sex. During this time, critics chided Ness for his long absences. His failure to find a serial killer, the press was now calling the torso murderer. On April 30, 1942, Ness stepped down as safety director of Cleveland and moved to Washington, D.C. to become the national director for the Federal Social Protection Program. In 1955, when traveling to New York City, Ness became acquainted with Oscar Fraley, a sports writer who took an interest in the stories of Ness's days back in Chicago. Fraley persuaded Ness to work with him on account of his experiences battling Chicago's bootleggers. Ness sent to Fraley a typed, 21-page, double-spaced memoir. When Ness saw the book's galley edition, his pride wouldn't agree to the text Fraley submitted. Ness signed off on all rights to the book, thinking that it wouldn't be a success. In a telephone conversation with the author in 1998, an aging Fraley said he knew the book would be the bestseller. When asked why he went ahead with the book knowing Elliot Ness disapproved, he said, Tough. I knew it would be a success, and if he didn't like it, he could sign off on it, which he did. On May 16, 1957, at 5.15 p.m., Elliot Ness died in his home at Cootersport, Pennsylvania, from a heart attack. His estate showed over $8,000 in debt. Ness never knew how popular his story would become, and that Desilu Productions would buy the rights to air the TV series that starred Robert Stack in the lead role. His widow, Elizabeth, could only afford to have Elliot cremated and brought back to Cleveland. A memorial service was held for him at the Church of the Covenant on Euclid Avenue. His ashes were kept by his son, Robert, who was only ten years old when Elliot died. Elizabeth died in 1977 after suffering from cancer of the throat for several years. She had lived in San Juan Capistrano, California, with a cousin when she passed away. It can easily be said that Elliot Ness's integrity was sincere, and his sense of justice was inflexible. His life was never easy, but he didn't allow fear to guide him. These last few paragraphs were published by the Santa Barbara Police and are in the public domain. And are in the public domain. Ness died at age 54 in 1957, broke and broken. The man who was once the nation's top prohibition agent now had a serious drinking problem of his own. Six months after his death, his memoir, The Untouchables, was published and became the basis for a television show a year later. Elliot Ness has remained a pop culture icon ever since. Forty years after his death, Ness was given a funeral with full police honors in Cleveland, and his ashes were scattered at Lakeview Cemetery on the city's east side, not far from Kingsbury Run, where the mad butcher left a trail of body parts. Thank you for joining us for Elliot Ness and the Butcher of Kingsbury Run. We hope you enjoyed the story of one of America's law enforcement legends, Elliot Ness. We always appreciate reviews. So if you enjoyed this episode, and if you enjoy 1001 Heroes, please do take a moment and send us a review. Until next time, everyone, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.